Welcome to the first episode of The Scoop, the college basketball podcast presented by Hoop Scoop Media. You know, it's been a while. We've been working towards a podcast for a few years. We've obviously been a company for a few years. If uh, you haven't been paying attention, well, we have. So, But this is our first episode of the podcast, and we're really excited to get into it. I'm Austin Getchy. I'll have Dan Steenkamer with me. And Dan, uh, are you really excited for this podcast? Uh, Austin, absolutely. This has been a long time in the works for all of us at Hoop Scoop, and I'm just glad that I'm able to be a part of it and uh, help you get this thing going. So certainly, we're picking a, a good time to get going. Uh, the new year, 2023, means really the, the nation's focus is on college basketball. We got through all the FBS football uh, wrap-up the other night, TCU, the Hypnotoad, that all comes to an end, all that fun. Uh, but there's more fun to come on the on the hardwoods. This is going to be great to uh, get rolling. Yeah, and speaking about football, I know you're a big FCS guy, covered the national championship. Now that all that's over, how how excited are you just get to, like college basketball is the main sport now. No, absolutely, it is. I, it's going to be refreshing. There's a uh, there's a fresh week of CAA basketball on tap uh, for me in my neck of the woods. And so I got back from Frisco and that whole Dallas-Fort Worth area, took a day of rest today for the most part while prepping for the podcast episode. And from here on out, it, it's it's college basketball across the board. So it's a it's a special time of year. Yeah, well, uh, you guys probably don't care too much about our personal lives, so might as well get started into the actual college basketball talk. But before we get that, I thought I'd just uh, plug our socials, follow or check out. I would appreciate a follow on Hoopscoop Media on Instagram or Twitter. Those are our only platforms so far. We're in the works of creating some new social media accounts, but for now, those are what we have. So without further ado, let's get into the actual content. And I'd say the main storyline, we'll start out with some news and notes. I'd say the main storyline of the past few weeks is Chris Beard finally getting fired by Texas. About a month ago, he was um, arrested. And I don't know what the uh, specifics of the arrest were, but the reports were that he assaulted his fiance. So, Dan, what are your uh, thoughts on that situation? Certainly, uh, when you first read the news, you, you worry about all the real life situations that that entails. The fact that there was uh, this alleged conflict and that this alleged violence occurred. Uh, that's certainly something that gets your attention quickly. Uh, but then stepping aside in, in, in our realm of what we talk about, there's a college basketball ramification to this. And of course, eventually, as the proceedings play out, uh, Texas decides to cut ties with Chris Beard. And he's a high profile name at certainly a high profile institution both athletically and academically. It's a huge program at a huge university. So this is going to make all kinds of waves, and it, it did, uh, as it should. I think the Longhorns, not they weren't left with no choice here. I think the, the easy take would be to say uh, they, they had no choice but to fire him. But in reality, when you're at, uh, whether it's a professional organization or a Power 5 organization in college sports, some some things are are not let slide, but there, there could be a long leash for certain things. And uh, Texas decided, made up its mind to not, uh, go that route. I know you and I are set to discuss a little more in detail about the state of the program and what we expect going forward, but this is a strong uh, men's basketball program. It has a legacy of success. It's been very competitive in the past uh, 10 plus years. And so this is a, a, a school, a team that could have decided to stick by a coach that has a winning name. Uh, but certainly when you look at that, the headlines and and it goes down the headlines, it's just a reality of a re- this is a real life situation, a real life investigation that has to uh, go through it became untenable for Texas to to get move forward with Coach Beard at the helm. So it, it's been interesting to take a look at 
uh, how they might project the remainder of the season. But certainly, I, I feel badly for uh, Texas student athletes on on that roster because it's just a situation where you put all your trust and all your belief in, in a single leader, and then there's an incident that occurs that completely betrays your trust. I mean, not that that's the biggest Texas players aren't the true victims in this storyline that, that, you know, separating it once again, the basketball and the real world component. But certainly when we're talking about college basketball and where this fits into it, I feel bad for the players, uh, but certainly uh, they, they can, they can look forward to uh, a new leader and we'll, and we'll discuss uh, which ways Texas might look for that. Yeah. Well, I just want to say that I think they made absolutely made the right decision by firing him. Obviously they hadn't gone through, Everything in the process, I know his fiance kind of released statement backtracking what happened. I mean, I'm not going to say what I think. Like, this, not my job isn't to speculate on what actually happened. But the bottom line is he put his hands on a woman and did some and uh, assaulted her in some way. And you just can't do that, especially if you're a public figure like Chris Beard. And the coach of texas like a program that big isn't going to let something like that slide and i think they made the right choice so um so obviously texas needs a new basketball coach their interim coach rodney terry he's been doing all right he has some d1 experience he was decent at fresno state decent at utep he not the best but he could he's uh definitely a suitable interim for the moment um but who knows if they're going to keep Rodney Terry around. They could keep him their permanent head coach, but there's also been numerous names floated around, such as John Calipari, and Kentucky's really struggling. They just lost to South Carolina. Kentucky fans want him out. I think Texas fans would want him. What are your thoughts on that? It, it, still, it still doesn't sound, it just doesn't sound even conceivable to me that, I mean, I know Kentucky fans have high expectations, but you just never expect certain cornerstone coaches to ever be on a, on a, even a warm seat at their programs. Right. It's like coach Cal in Kentucky that that was always supposed to be like, a, not a lifelong marriage, but it's just that that's just how it is. Coach, coach Cal Perry coaches, the Kentucky Wildcats, they run the sec and that, and that's how it's going to be. But it, to, to the point you're alluding to, maybe that's not necessarily the case. Now, I think there are separate issues, right? Like I can see a world where Kentucky wants to find the next big coach and next big name, uh, and they, they can live without Coach Calipari. But I can't see a world where John Calipari really fits in Texas. And the reason being, it was only a few months ago that Coach Cal got into a bit of a spat with Kentucky's head football coach, Mark Stoops, <laughs> when he was calling, hey, this is Kentucky. This is a basketball school. He wasn't afraid to go out and publicly say that in an effort to appeal to the university for uh, upgrades to basketball facilities. And Mark Stoops fired back at him. And it's just a situation where I can't see even certain Kentucky athletic, excuse me, certain Texas athletic boosters being comfortable with hiring a men's basketball coach who could aim to raise the profile of Texas basketball so much so that it interferes with that of football. Like, I actually do think that's a conversation that you have to think about a little bit. It's completely off the court. It's not really a matter of X's and O's or the ability to, ability to recruit. So maybe I'm inflating the issue a little bit, but I think back to that and I just wonder, would John Calipari fit in culturally at Texas? Now, he would fit in in certain ways in terms of the unmitigated desire to win uh, the proven track record. Like certainly these are all things that a top 10 program like Texas would, would match with. But I, I think about just how does coach John Calipari possibly fit into the Texas athletic department in the big picture. And I'm just not so sure if having the face of the athletic, like I think John Calipari would become the face of Texas athletics. 
And, th- and that's unprecedented for a school that's known for FBS Power 5 football. So I, I guess, am I thinking in a small-minded way, could Texas surprise me? They easily could. Uh, but I don't know that John Calipari would, uh, would necessarily look to take it on. Uh, he might he might be more drawn to a traditionally basketball-oriented institution. But at the same time, not every basketball-oriented institution has the resources that Texas has for any and all sports, right? So that's, that's another uh, card to play here. But having danced around the issue that much, my, my main conclusion would be, I, I'm not sure I see it. I know you and I have some other candidates to uh, talk over who I think might actually uh, just make a few more puzzle pieces fit. But certainly, Texas is all about making a splash. And John Kyle Perry moving schools within the P5 would be a big splash. Yeah, personally, I don't see Calipari to Texas happening. I know Kentucky fans, some Kentucky fans want him fired. That's not happening. His buyout is $50 million. He is not getting fired. Whatever happens. But I do remember like when UCLA opened, Calipari, there was some buzz between Calipari and UCLA. And I don't think there was ever actually serious interest there or if it was just like smoke. And I kind of think that's what this is with Texas here. I have seen some like semi-reliable sources say stuff about Calipari in Texas, but I I just I just can't see it. I see him staying at Kentucky for the remainder of his career. But that brings the question: If they don't hire him, who do they hire? And obviously, I mentioned Rodney Terry is there right now. He wouldn't be the worst hire. And another thing that Texas has two five stars in twenty twenty three: Ron Holland and. AJ Johnson, and they have both confirmed their commitments to Texas. And I'm pretty sure in both their tweets, they mentioned their commitment to Ronnie Terry as well. So what would what would you think if Texas kept Ronnie Terry around and elevated the interim tag to a permanent head coach? It's a tough question to try to answer in January, right? Like, I think once we get to February and there are more and more conference games under the belt, this becomes a little easier. But, of course, I can't dodge it. I can't dodge a good question on the first pod episode. So I think, though, as it stands right now, when you when you especially when you're in a situation like Texas is in the moment where we talked about the greater context of uh, Coach Beard, or I should say not even Coach Beard, just Chris Beard now being axed from the program, and there's instability because of the manner in which or or the way or what caused that firing, right? When there's that kind of instability and uncertainty, just taking the interim tag off a few months later and and putting all your trust in once again in a single person like Rodney Terry, where there's already that continuity from the prior staff, the prior administration, that could that could be to the benefit, and it could be to, to Coach Terry's credit the fact that there is the commitment to Texas from to, like you said the recruits who are highly rated who are, are staying the course at the moment, uh, but oh, Texas is certainly going to poke around, look around, get a whole idea of all of its options. Because as I alluded to talking about Coach Cal, it has the pull to get a lot of people. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of demand for this job. I mean, setting aside all of the, you can't call it, I mean, as more and more distance comes or as they get more and more separated from the unfortunate events of Coach Beard's violence, the the reality is Texas is going to be a job that it's not scaring anybody away. I mean, the football coaching or like the football school identity is not truly going to be holding back 99% of the coaches in America, right? Like these candidates are going to be lining up for the job. And so Texas has no, certainly would be unbusinesslike not to consider all of those candidates in addition to their current interim head coach. But for Rodney Terry, he should be right among among the rest of them, assuming there's not a complete flame out in big 12 play, which is hard to see because it's still a big top 10 talented team. But some of these names that are on the tip of my tongue that I don't want to give away just yet because I know you're going to get into them, but 
they're going to provide stiff competition for uh, an interim coach to, to deal with. Yeah, and obviously, I think you could settle for Rodney Terry, but if I'm Texas, I shoot way higher than Terry. He's fine, but like Texas is trying to establish itself as one of the dominant programs in college basketball. I think under Beard, maybe like the only programs that could recruit better are Duke and Kentucky. And I think Texas is just like, it's a powerhouse waiting to happen. I think if Beard wouldn't have messed up, then he would have brought them there. But obviously, that wasn't a scenario. So some other possible names. What are some other names that you think could be possibly go to Texas? Because a few of them are like maybe like Bruce Pearl, Eric Musselman, like Nate Oates. But are those... <laughs> Do you think those guys, any of those guys are going to want to leave their jobs that they're currently at? Well, if Texas dangles a, a big enough check in front of them, sure. That is my rule of thumb. I, I think about Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh, okay, so I'm the football guy in this conversation, but I'm, I'm going to only make a comparison once per episode. This is my one football analogy. Jim Harbaugh just put out, not too long ago, a statement about for the foreseeable future, I'm like paraphrasing here, for the foreseeable future, or he expects to be back with Michigan next season, right? But if the Broncos ownership has a hefty enough deal for him and he feels confident enough about rebuilding Russell Wilson, I don't know that that statement to Michigan is going to mean too much, right? So I did, coaches in general, college coaches in general, or professional coaches, you know, you're going to try to do the best opportunity for you and your family as you should. And when I look at Bruce Pearl, certainly he has to be thrilled with life at Auburn because Auburn's another one of those in the SEC where you say, well, is that, you know, you got to compete against Alabama. Alabama's not a shabby basketball program. Auburn is also going to be very concentrated on football, but Bruce Pearl has turned Auburn into being known primarily for basketball success of late. That is very impressive. And it, Auburn's not a stepping stone job at this point. I mean, Auburn basketball is a power, an annual power, but that's largely the credit to Coach Pearl. And so I think he can parlay that into a job that actually is more ready-made at Texas. I mean, it, it, if Bruce Pearl is able to do what he's done as, in terms of saying War Eagle and, and at Auburn, he, I, he, he should have even that much easier of a time. Not He makes it look easy. It's not actually easy, but certainly he should have an even smoother pathway at Texas. I actually think that that combination, Bruce Pearl and Texas, it's just so easy to picture to me. I, he he just strikes me as somebody who could, he's become a big name. He's built himself into or, or rebuilt himself into a big name. And so I, I, I just see that as being really a match that makes a lot of uh, philosophical sense in addition to just basketball appeal. Yeah, well, personally, if I'm Texas, I think the first guy I'm going after is Musk because he has completely changed Arkansas basketball into a powerhouse. He's one of the most entertaining coaches on and off the court. <laughs> and he's just been recruiting to like no other person has at Arkansas. He's recruited a portal extremely well. He's got some of the best high school guys in the country. Obviously got Anthony Buck and Nick Smith. Nick Smith is currently a little hurt right now, but I think he's like a legitimate like top five to ten player in college basketball when he's healthy and he's only a freshman. So side note, but if he's available in March, I like Arkansas a lot. But anyway, I think he's the first guy you go for. Uh but I think he's less likely to leave than some of the other candidates because I think Arkansas will pay a lot to keep him. But can they outpay Texas is the question. Like I I, I... Arkansas, yeah. Arkansas would be more than happy to keep him, but I just think tech, like if we were placing money on who who could spend more money, it would be Texas. Oh, definitely that's Texas. That's in a way, but right, it's <laughs> yeah. Well, some other candidates. Um, 
I see you jotted down Rick Pitino here. I don't see this being a good fit personally. I don't see Rick Pitino matching like the Texas culture, but I wanted to hear what you had to say on this. Well, so I, I put down, so Rick Pitino, so the candidates were in no particular order here in our podcast episode notes. So I didn't put Rick Pitino first, last, or anywhere in between, but what, I put down Rick Pitino in large part because it's hard for me not to envision there at least being a call. You know, just kind of feeling it out because Rick Pitino, the more distant, I talk about distance, getting some separate, like time heals a lot. Not that it actually fixes anything, but it does help ease a lot of personnel moves, right? Everybody, everybody, everybody feels a little more forgiving with time. Now, that's not to say that Rick Pitino is, is just, those slate is completely <laughs> wiped bare, right? But I, I do, I do think that certainly if I would be, if I'm Texas, it, it's worth just having his, his name among other names, right? Just to get an idea of, okay, he's coached at the very highest levels of college basketball. Texas as a basketball program is a top 10, but it, it hasn't necessarily been top five in recent memory. And so Rick Pitino is a coach who's been top five, top three, top one. And that, that means something. I don't know that Rick Pitino wants to retire as head coach at Iona, if he can help it. I just have a hard time picturing that. Certainly he enjoys being back in the game, right? And he's back in the saddle. And I certainly don't think he's like looking to quit on Iona unless he has something, a short thing lined up. But Texas is, Texas, like I said, like I've been alluding to, when you're, now, I had a professor who called certain P5 sports factories, and Texas is a great institution overall. So it's not just a sports factory, but it's a it's a power it's a powerhouse across many many sports and certainly institutionally they'll they're going to prioritize winners and i talk about bruce Pearl being a winner rick patino is just another high profile winner who not that he is the cleanest cut hire or the cleanest cut interview or any of the above like if word leaked that rick patino was in talks with texas that would be a headache for texas right like i don't think the horns want that but at the same time i put rick patino's name on there because it's just one of those names that i think gets floated and maybe you, you take the temperature of and you feel the pulse of, but it might not go too far. But I just think it would be a little bit uh, naive for me not to think that it could be a name that's tossed out there by, if not Texas's department itself, you know, NIL collectives, donors, th- people of those natures. Yeah, well, on that note, Bruce Pearl isn't exactly the cleanest person ever. <laughs> and also, if Rick Bettino takes a job, I see him taking Georgetown. I feel like that's been kind of buzzed about assuming Ewing's not going to be there that much longer, but that's a conversation for another day. Another candidate's been thrown out there is Jerome Tang. He's been doing great at Kansas State, which we'll talk about in a minute. We'll get to that. But moving on from the Chris Beer news, there's obviously been more stuff going on in college basketball, such as Sky Clark leaving Illinois, and he didn't enter the transfer portal. He just kind of like stepped away from the program. I don't know if we're going to be seeing him in Illinois again, and also, I don't really think it's that bad of a thing to happen for Illinois. Like, he was starting, but he wasn't that efficient this year. Obviously, he's a freshman. That stuff will probably come. But Illinois just beat Wisconsin. Tyler Wall less Wisconsin. But I think they're better without him, personally. No hate to him. I hope if he's going through anything, any personal issues that he gets those taken care of and those get better. But I think I don't think Illinois is any different with or without him, really. What are your thoughts on this situation? Well, Illinois definitely is different, actually. It's just the way I see it in the sense that it, it, there, there are there are 
it's hard to say. He's a talented young kid, right? So I don't want to say there are pros to him stepping aside and taking a leave of absence. There are many cons, which is one fewer talented piece of depth and less developmental time in the short term. But I think not, I, I can't call him pros because that still sounds odd, but possible lights in the tunnel about this are that the Clark is not in a half in half out situation. There's a lot of clarity for everybody involved. He has this indefinite leave of absence. And so it's kind of a clean cut. He's just not going to be in the rotation, not going to be actively uh, a roster piece. You can go to uh, not going to be somebody who's really in practice or anything like that, that it makes it a little more simple on everybody because it had, it just continued in the direction of well, the availability continues to wean off. And it's still in a half in half out in between stage and whatever it is was going on with, with uh, the young man, his family was still looming in terms of uh, I- impacting the true full of full availability and intention to play. Then that that would that would have made life hard on Sky Clark himself and his teammates and coaching staff. So this actually, I'm sure it weighed on Clark a lot. Like I, this couldn't have been easy as a true freshman with these expectations to take the leave of absence and have to not answer questions. He doesn't have to answer any questions about it, but just have to know that those questions are being asked about him. And he isn't going to necessarily take the time to clean up. There are things going to be, they're going to be said about him that are unfair. Right. And they just aren't true, but he, he, he is prioritizing his, his personal and family life. And that's uh, admirable. And I just think back to, you know, we were, we were freshmen not too long ago. We we weren't P5 basketball players, but we were, we were freshmen in college and freshman year of college is not easy on most folks, I think it's fair to say, let alone folks who are playing uh, sports on a really bright stage. And when you factor that in with anything that could have been going on in his life, certainly it adds up to a a, a puzzle for an 18-year-old that is, I, I don't blame him one bit, certainly. That's hard, without knowing, right? Like, And even if I did know, like, it certainly is a situation where uh, I actually think he's, he's he's got a lot of courage to, to go ahead and do this uh, because in the Twitter, like people can go tweet anything they want about him and say, ah, he's quitting on his team. You know, like I already know the kind of knee jerk reactions that could come out. So I just think in a, in a big macro sense, uh, this is, this is actually refreshing to see. Uh, it's refreshing to see Illinois be so supportive of him in their statements right away. That's a, that's a plus. That's a good, that's just a, that's a good message to the other players on the roster too. Like, it's not like you're, you're not feeling like you're pressured to perform and like, it's not, it's, it's Illinois culture doesn't seem purely transactional. Right. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying the other schools are, but this is just a moment where you get to see what a program's really made of, right. When something like this is happening and there's a lot of questions going around and you ultimately rally around the kid, the player who, who needs support and, or needs some space in, in some distance. These are, I, those are all things that are happening that I think are, are positives uh, playing out in this. Yeah, I agree. And another related note, I was uh, Patrick McCaffrey. He was more uh, clear on his. He is taking a mental health break, basically. And we both fully support that choice because, I mean, it's really the same thing as if he's hurt physically. If he's not right, he really doesn't need to be out there playing and he should focus on that stuff first. And just just a one word answer from you: Will we ever see Sky Clark in Illinois uniform again? Yes, that's interesting. I uh, I would lean towards no, but I there's just so much that I don't know about the situation. And also a note: He was previously committed to Kentucky, and he was committed to Paul like five years ago when he was in eighth grade. Him and Amari Bailey, that would have been great to Paul, but they committed when they were in like ninth grade so but some other 
bad news. Uh, Grand Canyon point guard Jovan Blackshirt Jr. is out for the year. He's been a four-year starter for them, played 97 games in his GCU career, started all of them. Definitely a huge hit for a Grand Canyon team looking to win the WAC. It definitely makes your chances slimmer, although I think they're still up there. Rayshon Harrison has been another really good backcourt member. And then some transfer news to hit on. Georgia transfer Kyron Lindsey has committed to Texas Tech. He averaged 6.2 points and 5.2 rebounds in 10 games this year. It's His transfer was a little bit of odd timing. I It just kind of came out of nowhere. Like He was kind of good at Georgia this year, so I don't know what provoked that. Probably something happened behind the scenes, but I'm not going to speculate on what that was, but when it comes down to it, Texas Tech gets a true power forward. He is skilled and athletic, and Kevin O'Banner is going to be graduating. His eligibility is up next year. That will leave some space for Lindsey, along with some other members like Robert Jennings. But I think it's a good pickup, and he's pretty sure he was recruited by them out of high school, which makes sense why he committed to them. He chose them over TCU. He took visits in the past few weeks to both places. So now getting into the real chunk of the podcast. Um, first segment, so we're going to have a few segments. We're going to talk about where did these Kansas State Wildcats come from? We're going to talk about how worried should we be? Or wait, first before that, we're going to talk about some our midseason All-American teams. We're going to describe our and uh, come up with our first, second, and third teams. We're going to have a segment of how worried should we be about some teams that are not living up to their preseason expectations. And we're going to go into mid-majors, mid or not, which are five mid-majors. And we're going to determine if they're actually legitimate contenders or if they're just playing nobody and beating up on just random teams. So to start it off, we need to talk about Kansas State because I did not see the Wildcats becoming this good this year. Like over the offseason, like, I repeatedly said that this team is not a Big 12 level team. I liked the Jerome Tang hire at first, but like when you got into when it started to get into the offseason and like who he was getting, like I didn't think those were Big 12 caliber players. And I still don't think some of them are, but like I think they're all fit a good role in the system. Um, I mean, yeah, first you gotta love that Tang hire. He built a program up at Baylor with Scott Drew. Um, and then in really late, Keontae Johnson committed, and I was skeptical about this. He hadn't played a game in two years, almost two years. He was elite last time he played, but like there was questions on like if he would ever actually get in the court again, or if he would just like if he would actually ever become the player he is. He was, and it turns out that he's better than what he was. Like he is a legit All American candidate. It seems like nothing has really changed since he last played at Florida except maybe he got better. And if you mention All-American candidates, you have to mention Marquise Noel, too. He's completely transformed his game. He's averaging like 18 points, 9 assists. He's just been so good for the Wildcats, and he's been amazing, especially in Big 12 play. Did you see this coming at all, Dan? No, no. I, I can't say I did. Kansas State is not a program that I was I'm really placing highly on my Big 12 bingo card, but you look at them even this evening as we record on on a Tuesday night, their defeat of Oklahoma State. Uh, I, it certainly extends the winning streak, but then looking at it even more closely, it's the Oklahoma State team that was holding opponents to 61.5 points per game in Kansas State. 
gets 65 on the board, and that's enough for a win. So there's winning in different ways. They have multiple overtime wins this season. Yeah, uh, they scored love- like 116 on Texas, so right, they can, right. yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, 116 on Texas, like, that doesn't get to be more of a track meet than that, right? And so I, I look at it and I say, it's a team that's showing all kinds of moxie, composure, in different paces of games. Two All-Americans in the starting lineup are two candidates in Noel and Johnson. It's remarkable. And that's why we even had Jerome Tang on, on the list. Like the ascension of not just a team, but individually Tang, he, he gets on the Texas list because how, how could he not? I mean, he just he just did a number on the long the Longhorn saw firsthand what he what he's done for, for Kansas State. But certainly it's a mixture of credit that goes to uh the head coach, his staff, but and the and the players themselves. I mean, goodness gracious, uh Kansas State. Is going to be very fun to watch now after this win over Oklahoma State. The the game now at TCU on this coming Saturday, the fourteenth of January. That 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 could be. I don't know how the Big Twelve and the ESPN have have written their TV deal in terms of whether you can flex certain games or anything like that. But TCU versus Kansas State, purple on purple, good on good, great on great. That's what it looks like because uh, I and I and to answer your original question, I could not have guessed that. From the beginning of the season for the same reasons or the same questions you had. Uh Keontae Johnson, certainly a player we were all rooting for, right? But I didn't expect that he was going to become a starting forward who becomes a key cog in an AP ranked team that ma- it made the biggest jump from unranked to ranked of anybody this year. Yeah, for sure. Another uh thing I realized is that Miami paid Nigel Pack four hundred thousand dollars plus like a car or whatever to basically commit to Miami and then when you look at it this year like he's been he's been all right he's been solid at Miami maybe not lived up to expectations but certainly hasn't been like super disappointing but when you look at Noel Noel was like a far outperforming pack this year so looks like Miami pl- paid the uh, wrong member of the Kansas State backcourt and then <laughs> another <laughs> another guy is Naquan Tomlin who has really come out of nowhere was in Juco for like three or four years I think and has just kind of almost has that Pascal Siakam skill set. He can dribble the ball a little. He can shoot a little. Um, he's very athletic, very skilled. He can defend. He can finish at the rim. He's been really like the most surprising player, in my opinion. And that's what it takes to surprise everybody, right? Is a couple guys in the supporting cast who also emerge and don't come out. I'm seeing if you asked everybody in Manhattan, Kansas, they wouldn't say that these players came out of nowhere, right? I mean, I don't think that's something they would agree with. But for all, all of us, all of us outside observers, it certainly comes across that way. And it, it, in some total, you add Tomlin to that. When we already talked about uh, Noel and Johnson, who are nearly after nearly 20 points per game, you look at a transfer from Hofstra. Uh, Eola from Hofstra is. I mean, he came out of the CEA right up the road from me, and here he is contributing on what is going to be an NCAA tournament team. The, yeah, these, I are think, the, these uh, are the moves. These are the moves that Coach Tang has made that uh, transform Manhattan. I mean, into a place that is selling out nightly. I was reading up in their uh, media notes and and uh, their press releases. Three straight sellouts on tap this week. If we're counting tonight's game, uh, I, I do believe so. That this is a K State team that. I, I really do. I point again to that TCU game. K- TCU versus Kansas State is going to be a, a great one. And I would hope for Kansas State's sake that once they even do drop a game, everybody, everybody just keep an eye on it. Keep an eye on it because it, it's 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 a, it's one of the top stories of the year. Mm-hmm. The Octagon of Doom has 
really been rocking lately. Another thing you mentioned about guys like Iola, they've just been like playing their role perfectly. Like David Nagesson, Desi Sills, Cam Carter, like they've all just came in what does they've done what needs to be done. Like they've just filled your, their roles perfectly. And those were some guys I really had questions about preseason because I didn't know what you were getting from them. But they, have, they haven't been like star players, but they've done exactly what they needed to to win and support their star cast of Noel, Johnson, and Tomlin. And I guess, do you have any last thoughts on the Wildcats? Yeah, I, I think your thought about just filling your roles, that gets a little more complicated, I think, in the NIL era, right? Like, and you'd loaded the pack and like, how much are our expectations or what we think are the expectations of pack? How much are those expectations affected by or inflated by we know the context of what kind of NIL exchanges and deals he's gotten in exchange for transferring a certain place, right? Or like playing at a certain place. Like we know it's, it's, it's really pay for play type related gray area, right? In terms of pack and other players. And that's, that's not a criticism of pack. Don't, don't get me confused here. It's not a criticism of Nigel pack at all because the NCAA gives you the breathing room, even if though they don't want to permit it, there's, there's all this loose, loosey goosey room for, uh, for collectives to, to get that done. My, my broader point is, it makes it at most P5s with the existence of NIL and and the prevalence and star players getting a, an inside track to that. It makes it such that the expectations of those star players are greater and they need the support of a supporting cast even more, right? Like this, the scrutiny is really high in this in this year and in, in the world we live, now live in co- in high level major college basketball. So uh, I, I, I do think that Kansas State is a great example of your point is exactly right. The, the the role players right like we used to call them role players like they're, they're they're playing not out of their shoes just not out of their minds just getting exactly the job done and it it it, it, it makes everybody's life better yeah for sure and yeah Kansas State's really been a story to watch this year they've they haven't looked anything like I thought they'd be and now we will move on to our midseason all-american teams which is a part I am really excited for. So how do you want to uh, do this? Like, do you want me to list off my full first team and we can uh, compare? Yep. Now, I'm going to preface by making a disclaimer about my All-America teams here in midseason that they are there. There are a f- this is gonna, not going to be as I mean, obviously, this is a one man ballot. Right. So this isn't really a projection of how I think national voters like a panel of national voters would do it. This is just I I, I, I handpicked uh, nitpicked a bunch of names. Uh, there are a lot of mid-majors represented for that reason. Uh, there are a lot of different, there's a variety of conferences in here. It's not, uh, honestly, there's not a ton of, of, of Pier 5. So like I actually, not that I deliberately excluded K-State players, but I knew that we were going to be discussing K-State a lot. So this is kind of, this is just a number of notable names who I think are nationally should be recognized who are really high up on different statistical leaderboards who might not be just like certain power conference all-stars, but they're, but it, it's still all American team. Don't get me wrong. It's just, I'm curious to see how our different like mindsets going into it affect uh, how we compare. All right. So on my first team, I had Jalen Pickett, Jaime Hawkes Jr., Jalen Wilson, Drew Timmy, and Zach Edie. And Edie was my player of the year. Um, how did your first team line up compared to that? So the name that overlaps there for sure is Zach Edie from Purdue. I'm assuming he's your uh, player of the year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a it's it's the lineup that I I, I name Ed first because the 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 absolute dominance of that center position for a Purdue team that figures very prominently into the national championship hunt, uh, largely because of Ed. I mean that's a no brainer. Now <laughs> I I diverge on the guard play because I I looked at a number of high scoring guards in mid major land 
not not necessarily. I mean, I put him at first team, but again, this is not something where it would realistically happen as a matter of national media. But these are names who are, I who whether it's in points scored per game or rebound or or assists per game. I really thought they stood out. So regardless of level competition too, so like it, there's a little bit of a factor of hey, we can the disclaimer ahead of time that some of these players are not doing it against the same like Big Ten schools every day. But it's just to their credit. At the same time, all that said, I included in the top along with ed at forwards jake stevens from chattanooga who's a player who's not he's not i don't want to call him a miniature ed because i want to call him his own player but he's uh, putting up numbers in pretty balanced and scoring and rebounding that remind me of any any other dominant mid-major forward uh sam sessions from coppin state ranks in the top 50 in three offensive categories in the country and scoring i think i I want to double check on his scoring rating but i have to i apologize i have to refresh my load up on sessions but he is fourth in the nation in points scored per game 22.4 a game for a coppin state team that i mean i just look at coppin state in general like as a program uh i had a buddy our, our friend uh, nick nick lawrence at mid-major madness he was at a coppin game that was delayed because the officials weren't there on time and i think they were playing jmu and like an 11 a.m start with the field trip kids and they weren't even able to start on time sam sessions just gets it done for Coppin State, certainly a bright spot for them. I know Coppin, the guys who work there, do a great job. They just go through a lot. And Sam is an example of a player who's really, really a strong one. So I wanted to talk about him a little bit. And I put him on an All-America team at guard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and my, my other guards were Mike Miles from TCU and uh, Antoine Davis from Detroit Mercy. All right. So uh, going back to my team, Pickett is a guy who uh, – he was a guy who I would not even like have on my radar preseason, but he's just been amazing, particularly – Passing the ball, he has um, averaging 7.3 assists, which is fourth in the country. He also is fourth in the country in assist-to-turnover ratio. And he's he's been scoring the ball efficiently, averages like 17-7-7. and seven. Um, He's basically carried Penn State to this point, which uh, one other thing I want to note about him is he's like not a guy who can blow past even like slow people. Like Pickett, just, he, but he's a great back-down player. Like he can get to where he wants in the floor, but he's not going to do that by blowing past you. He just gets the job done. And another speaking about that back down player, Jaime Hawkins Jr. is also one of the best in the country. He's a great mid range shooter. Can also get work done on the floor and on in the paint. And he another thing about Hawkins is he always seems to play at his own pace, no matter how the game is going. Like you can't really get in his head and. He's led UCLA to arguably a top five team in the country. I'd say they are. So that's why I had, I had him there. Drew Timmy, I feel like Drew Timmy has somehow gone underrated this season, despite being like one of the faces of college basketball over the past few years. He's had the best season of his career so far. And I know Gonzaga isn't quite the powerhouse they have been, but he's also been amazing still. He has played like a little bit more in last season. So that's why his counting sets look better, but his shooting percentage is the best it has been since his freshman year. I think his freshman year percentage might've been a little higher, but he wasn't playing close to the same minutes and he's like the go-to guy this year. And obviously Edie, he's an obvious social player of the year. He's just led Purdue to great heights, <laughs> figuratively, figuratively and literally He's a very tall player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Your point about Timmy is a good one. Uh, I had Timmy on second team, but that's really just a symptom of Drew Timmy fatigue. And it's not his fault. It's just he, we've known 
for so long that he is so strong a player and he anchors one of the top teams, one of the most elite teams in the country. Now Gonzaga, not the same team this particular season, but he, Timmy's been the front at the front line of the best Gonzaga teams lately. And so, uh, yeah, I, I do think that it's really just a byproduct of that. Our consciousness, we've always had Timmy on the mind lately. And so we start promoting other players, but the reality is he's, he's on his own, right? He's putting up the season that you just described. It's one of his best. Yeah, and back to Edie. He's just been like amazing this year. Obviously, it's his team now. Like last year, Ivy was kind of the leader. Plus, Edie was splitting min- minutes with Travion Williams, who was a great center, but you couldn't really play those two together, which was tough. But like, and then I see a lot of people saying that Edie isn't that good. He's just like super tall, but that's just completely untrue. He's he has a lot of skill for what he needs to do. Like, obviously, you're not going to see Edie shooting threes, but. Edie is a very skilled player, and there's just really no debate about that. So moving on to second teams, do you want to list your guys off first? I'll, I'll lead us off this time, and uh, it's going to be a bit of a, of a, of a review in some ways because uh, there's a there are a couple. I touched on Timmy. Timmy, I already gave away. Timmy is a second team player for me. Uh, Tyler Kolek from Marquette. I have at a guard spot in my second team. Kolek is right behind your guy, Jalen Pickett from Penn State, and uh, assist-to-turnover ratio. Uh, Kolek is averaging 3.68 assist-to-turnovers, which is fifth in the country. And that that's that's just a demonstration of the fact that I really like his passing uh, for the Golden Eagles. Uh, he, score, he certainly is a more than capable scorer as well. But I, I really liked on my second team, I wanted to have a different strength. Like, I was thinking about building an All-America team. Again, as a one-man show here, making my own All-America team, I wanted to have a collection of guards who all do all get different parts of the game, you know, taken care of. Right. And so a facilitator in Colac was a guy I really liked from Marquette. Now I, I touched on the CA a couple of times that this second team, I probably should have put him on third team, but I've watched Aaron Estrada for a number of years now from Hofstra and he could take over a game like any mid-major player in the country. So my mid-major oriented All-America team, hard for me not to name Aaron Estrada from Hofstra on my second team in terms of he being a guy who he he can play like a point guard, but he's also a player you can kick it to in the corner and he'll he'll hit a three in, in anybody's face and anybody's arms. Uh, Myron Gardner from Arkansas Little Rock is a, is a pretty obscure name for me to throw in here as well uh, out of the mid-major America realm, but uh, Myron Gardner is one of the top rebounders in the country who is not listed at a forward or center spot by NCAA.com. I think some other sources might list him differently. So I guess he's best described as a hybrid guard, a uh, forward kind of player. But as a guard, he rebounds uh, as well as any guard in all division one. And I really like that in terms of getting, like I said, I want scoring assists and rebounding. So I want to recognize Gardner as well. Maybe not the kind of all around player who most people would think realistically is going to end up with an all America by the end of the season. So again, it's not necessarily a projection on that front, but I'd like Myron Gardner for Arkansas Little Rock, throw him on there, second team at that guard spot. And lastly, on the second team, Chris Murray from Iowa, as I get realistic and go back in the P5 world, Chris Murray <laughs> is a big part of the Iowa Hawkeyes being a Big Ten team that. Uh, it's not necessarily the most frequently discussed Big Ten team, right? It's not necessarily the top of the standings uh, or preseason poll, but I really like Chris Murray at forward on the second team as well. Yeah, I think he especially has stepped into a good role, almost of that of his brother last year, Keegan Murray, who's obviously went top five in NBA draft. But I do really like how your All-American teams have been a little away from the chalk. I think mine are more realistic on what would actually happen, but I think you're definitely giving a lot of credit to some players who maybe deserve to be on these lists that 
don't get to be anywhere near these just because of where they play and the competition they're playing against, even though they are very skilled players and will maybe even be on this list if they were playing at power schools. But and honestly, say- in these days, I don't want to cut you off. But I just want to say these guys could watch for it who could transfer, right? Like they could end up on P5s and, and end up on the kind of list that you're making too, in terms of a realistic for truly, you know, an all-American team we could see. But sorry, I didn't want to cut you off too soon there. I just want to note that like, hey, these are portal names, like possible portaling names to watch too. Yeah, for sure. And I have just a quick little sneak peek. I have someone similar to that on my third team who uh, transfer. Um, so if anyone's watching, they could uh, guess ahead and who it could be. But I'm not going to spoil that. But speaking about Arkansas, Arkansas Little Rock, I have Marquise Noel, who originally started out there on my second team, obviously is at Kansas State now. He has been amazing this year. We've already hit on him. But another thing is he's only 5'8", and like that's shorter than me, and I'm not very tall. So it's just crazy to think of the things he's been accomplishing at the size, which a lot of, I feel like nowadays, if you're too short, then people aren't going to want you. Obviously he went mid-major, low major out of high school and is now showing out on the big stage. Um, I have Marcus Sasser. He's been the best player on arguably the best team in the country. You can say Kansas or Houston are the best team in the country. And I would not have a problem with that. Um, but he has been a the go-to scorer, and he's been amazing on defense. This year, he leads the American in offensive and defensive, BPM, box plus minus. So he's been a force on both sides of the ball. His uh, three-point percentage has dipped slightly, but his two-point percentage has risen. So I feel like that might be just an outcome of him being the go-to guy, and defenses are more focused on him than ever, especially with all the hype coming into the season. Another guy I have is Brandon Miller, who's undisputably been the best freshman in the country for Alabama. I think he's been one of, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that Alabama has just became a top five team. He kind of reminds me of last year's uh, Jabari Smith. He can really shoot the ball, can really score from all three levels, and will be a very high NBA draft pick next year. Another guy, I heard a lot, or no, I have two more guys. Um, one is Adama Snogo from UConn. He's just been a force on both sides of the ball, as well as some of the other guys on this list. He has, he's also another guy that's taken a team that was supposed to be like a mid-level, maybe top 25 team to this National League championship contender. And obviously, he hasn't been the main reason. UConn has a perfect team built around him. But he's really leaped into that star spot. He's extremely efficient. He's really seen his shooting percentages increase, particularly his free throw percentage. And also, he started to stretch out his range a little bit. He's definitely not a guy who's going to be like shooting threes. But if you leave him open and don't put anyone on him, he's been shown the ability to try some threes and make them. And the last guy is Azolas Tubelis. He's he got hurt last year later in the year. He still played but didn't really keep up that same efficiency and output. But this year he's you would have never thought he's been injured and obviously that's good to see because you don't want players lingering injuries that lead to worse performance. 
And yeah, he's just been dominant this year. Him and Omar Ballo, they've just been a dominant duo in the front court. I especially like Chubelis. He runs the floor very well, skilled post moves, and that's why he's on my second team. And so I guess I'll just take right ahead and go into my third team of guys. So I have Marcus Carr from Texas on there. Obviously, we hit on Texas a lot earlier in this podcast, but for not good reasons. But some really good thing to happen to him is Marcus Carr really being who we thought we would get last year. I feel like Marcus Carr was maybe the most hyped up transfer in the country. Like people are projecting him as an All-American last year. And he was like, all right, he was all big 12, but he he just wasn't that player that everyone thought he'd be. And this year, he has been the player that everyone thought he'd be when he came into Texas. Him and Tyrese Hunter form a nice duo in the backcourt. Uh, they share ball handling duties. And he's just, Marcus Carr has just gotten significantly better in every area of the game. That's just like one way to put it. Like he's just been dominant. And I think uh, one reason, another reason why he's been good is Texas, like, they've definitely played a faster tempo than last year. Last year, they had all that talent and were, like, one of the slowest teams in the country, which is something that I never understood. But this year, the tempo is right around 100 in the country, which is not particularly fast, but it's also faster than most teams because there are, like, 363 teams in the country. And Carr has really seen his volume, or not his volume, his percentages, in volume, but his percentages increase as a shooter. He's shooting 44% from three this year, 44.6 going into today, which is way higher than what he's been shooting in the past. And considering he's particularly, particularly a shooter and gets his work done from the outside, his percentages have really led to a great overall performance from him. And another guy that I was referring to earlier is Sule Boom out of Xavier. He transferred from UTEP. He was also previously at San Francisco like a long time ago. He's been at UTEP for the past few years. Xavier, has, Xavier, I really like Xavier this year. They actually have a good coach now in Sean Miller. That's really eleva- elevated their program. And one reason why is Boom. Um he's just been he's been like as good as he was at UTEP. Or even better, arguably, um, he has filled the gap perfectly. One of the things that really stands out to me is his like movement. Like, I feel like he's just so like slippery on the court and like is able to get to his spots and get around defenders. And that's that's the thing that really stands out to me about him on the court. Also, like his shooting percentages, he's not like necessarily the main guy anymore. I think he's been the best player on Xavier this year, but Xavier has weapons surrounding him, which has allowed him to have better shooting percentages as well as he's just a perfect fit for Xavier. Another player is Trace Jackson Davis, who we're going to talk about Indiana in a little bit, how they've maybe not lived up to expectations, but I don't think that's of any fault to TJD. He's been dominant still like he's been the same player basically for the past three years, but that's still a very good player. He's his passing has really stood out to me this year. I think that's where he's made the most strides in over the off season. And yeah, he's still been a dominant four man and is still the reason him and Puchifino are the reason why Indiana is still kind of good despite dealing with some injuries and stuff. 
Another guy that I have is Armando Baycott. UNC has been a little disappointing as well, but he's still been putting up the numbers. He's not the problem with UNC and North Carolina, why they're not playing as good as they were supposed to preseason. I don't think they ever should have been number one, but that's not my point. And continuing with that theme, disappointing teams and players who have still been good. I had to throw Oscar on there. He's still rebounding the ball in the right? Leads the country in offensive rebounds. He's really been the only bright spot for Kentucky this year. He hasn't been quite as good as he was last year, which is why I threw him on the third team. And team success plays a part in that. But he's still been a dominant player. Don't make any mistakes about that. He's still a force on the boards and can score from inside very well as well. And that is my third team. So, uh, Dan, who do you have on your third team? Well, so I I was excited to get to my third team because we have a similar name. We have an overlapping name from my third and your second. Uh, and that is from Arizona, Azulis uh, Tubelis. I, I really like Tubelis, too. The, the Lithuanian is very, very skilled. 6'11", junior, but he, he moves so well. Uh, you, you put it better than I could. Uh, he entered the season needing only 184 points to reach 1K on his career. Uh, that's going to put him in a very exclusive list to Arizona and really nationally, uh, needless to say. So I certainly, as I look at it in the bigger picture, really, I put him on the third team. But it was really it, it's splitting hairs because I th- he's one of the few power five players I, I had to put in when I was really taking a uh, maybe like a, a, a unique mid-major approach to this these lists as well. So. Uh, it, it's a matter of certainly you could put him either way. I have I happen to have slot him into the third spot, uh, third team spot. And the other third team forward I have is Josh Cohen from St. Francis of Pennsylvania. Now, I know that certainly not even all mid-major leagues are created equally. So putting an NEC player on here is this is going to be like the one NEC player I, I put under this distinguished list. But I mean, Josh Cohen is a 6'10 forward who's averaging just under 22 points a game. And his field goal percentage is one of the best in the country as well. Just such efficiency. Uh, SFU, everything runs through him for them uh, when you when you make, go right through it. And obviously, I guess that's not going to be to anybody's surprise since he's <laughs> the only red flash name on a lot of these uh, national leaderboards. But uh, gosh, I'll be darned if I didn't give him some love on the air for the first episode. So I, I put him in on the third team. Uh, so it is the combination of Tubelas and Cohen from SFU on there for the 13 forwards and then my guards i have a rather big name on guards but still i guess a mid-major in the end of the day is emily bates from eastern michigan i i guess that's more of like an off-season trendy name than it is necessarily uh solely based on play this season but bates still is putting up numbers offensively that i warranted me i mean he's just over 20 points a game he's only a sophomore so for me it's even a bit of a projective pick like i i i know there's a lot more to come so really the third team felt like an appropriate spot uh for emily although certainly it would have been a little bit easier if he uh had had uh ended up in the power team such a power conference situation that we necessarily uh thought and rounding it out I just love this storyline in Division One. Again, breaking into the, the mid-major world or like the higher end mid-major for UAB. Although I know you you scratched UAB from our our, our script our, our pod script earlier. Although I'll still consider it higher end because UAB has Jordan Walker on its roster, and Jordan Walker is one of the premier scorers in the country. I put a lot of emphasis on offense in my team, so of course I couldn't exclude uh, Jordan Walker. But then I also added in on top of. Jordan Walker from UAB, Jordan Dingle from Penn. I had to have Jordan and Jordan and Jordan Dingle. I got to see a little bit of him with uh, Delaware playing Penn in the Cathedral Classic multi-team multi event 
in Philadelphia at the Palestra. And Jordan Dingle, I, I really hope he gets to play in the NCAA tournament because Jordan Dingle is a name that I could very easily picture trending on Twitter. Everybody's saying, who is this Dingle guy, right? And like, you would know it. I would know it by now. But gosh, I, I'm really hoping that the Penn is one of those NCAA, those Ivy NCAA tournament teams who gives a highly seeded team a good game. Because if Penn is in that situation, it's going to be because Jordan Dingle is running the offense uh, and getting it done. So that, that rounds out my third team. Yeah, definitely interesting group of guys. As I said earlier, I like that we had a different approach to it. I think mine is like more realistic of what the voters will do. And you gave a lot of respect to guys that maybe don't get the respect that they deserve. A few names that I wanted to mention that I just left out were Jalen Clark of UCLA, Hunter Dickinson of Michigan. I almost put Stevens on there. Him being at Chattanooga kind of held me back, but don't get me wrong. I love Jake Stevens. I think he's amazing. I just don't think the voters will put him on there and with the competition he's been playing, but I could see him playing in NBA with like how big he is and the skill set he has. He can really shoot the ball considering how big he is, and he can really do everything on the court pretty well. So moving on from All-American teams, there's been some teams that haven't lived up to preseason expectations, and I guess we'll just tell you if we're worried about these teams or not. So the first team that is really disappointed is Kentucky, and I had my notes about this podcast like last night. That was prior to the game versus South Carolina. And before that, Kentucky really hadn't suffered any detrimental blows. Like, they lost. They haven't been that great this season. But before, and then they just lost to South Carolina tonight, which pretty much, like, derails their whole season. Because I don't know if they can really come back from this. This dropped them, like, 18 spots in Ken Palm. South Carolina is horrible. But like before that, they lost to Michigan State, Gonzaga, UCLA, Missouri, Alabama. Some of those losses were not in the best form. They got blown out in some of them. But in the grand scheme of things, like all of those losses, you can live with them. You cannot live with a South Carolina loss. And honestly, I had in my notes that I would I think they would still make tournament. I don't think that anymore. I think there's a serious problem here. South Carolina is terrible. And that game was at home. Like you you still can't lose that game on the road, but like at home, that's a Q4 loss, I'm pretty sure. Like, that's terrible. And that's just not a good look for Kentucky at all. And I don't really think they're that talented, obviously, outside of Oscar. Like, some of the guys, like, uh, Son Wallace has been pretty solid, but I think, like, Severe Wheeler really hasn't lived up to expectations. Antonio Reeves really hasn't. Jacob Toppin hasn't. And the real kicker is that Bryce Hopkins, Kentucky let him go, and he's now like one of the best players in the country at Providence. So just not a good year for this Kentucky team. What do you think, Dan? Well, I was following you, although I I, I pause a bit at totally shoveling dirt on their NCAA tournament hopes just because we're on January the 10th at this moment. Certainly, they took a big step backwards tonight with the loss to Escar. There's no question about that. Like, that is... I think you're right that it is going to end up being a Q4 loss. And it being at home is even worse. Now, the flip side to that coin is if I can make any hope out of it for big bluegrass, big blue team, big blue country, is that, hey, this could be the wake-up call that spurs uh, Kentucky on to a turnaround. It, it's not going to feel dramatic, 
but they can pick up the pieces. They have the remainder of SEC play to turn it around. Uh, we talked about John Kyle Perry a lot earlier. I don't know that I'm going to rule out any, like when we're talking about a Patino or a Kyle Perry, like I'm not going to like necessarily say that their team is done in January. Although the, these coaches, their teams aren't invincible either. Right. And so there are major, major, there aren't question marks. There are alarm bells now. And, and you summarized it really well. I mean, Savir Wheeler, he had 10 points in, in all 40 minutes tonight, three boards, three assists. It just, I would have thought there might be more against South Carolina anyway, you know, just to, just some more in the statute to support Oscar Sweebay. It just wasn't there. Uh, really just a lackluster performance. I mean, to be trailing South Carolina by 10 and allowing 42 points in the first half in Rupp Arena, that, that, that just, to me, that, now I didn't see this game live. Like, I, I'm going to watch the video back. But when, when you look, when you just look at the box score that way, that to me is telling you it's a team that just was out flat, right? Like it just came out flat. And so that is something that you, you, when you see it, that happened in a conference game, it tells you, yeah, there should be a lot of pause before we go ahead and assume that we can just uh, marker Kentucky into the NCAA tournament bracket. Yeah. Another day, South Carolina scored 42 points against Tennessee. They lost by like 40 and today they scored 42 points in the first half at Kentucky. So there definitely needs to be some changes within the program. I'm not going to rule them completely out yet, but if the season ended now, I think I'd have them out for sure. Uh, they haven't gotten any significant wins. Maybe Michigan, that's kind of on the fence. Michigan's kind of been up and down, but they had a Yale win that was looking kind of good, but then Yale decided to lose two bad games right away in conference play, so that's not holding up anymore. So next team is Creighton, who... I'm a Creighton fan, so I might be a little more optimistic than you are about this team. But I think as long as they have Ryan Kalkbrenner healthy, there's no reason to worry. They Their bad losses were all without him, and which I will say that they definitely have some problems on the team. Like They, they really did, just didn't look good without him at all. And I think if they're really like a truly top 10 team, they should still be able to be good without one player. I think a lot of that goes down to their bench is pretty bad, but I think they're starting five stacks up still with one of the best in the country. If you look at Ken Palm, they're still 17th despite being nine and seven. They've lost a lot of close games. I don't think there's really any reason to be too worried as if this, like if they keep dropping games in big East play, then there might be some worries. But as of now, I think Creighton will end up a comfortable tournament team. Yeah, I'm not hitting the panic button either. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say, oh, I disagree with the Creighton fan on this one. Uh, really, I don't. I actually follow you on this one too. I look at the resume, right? Like, I okay. I'm like, okay, the overall record it looks mid, right? But let's peel back the layers of the onion a bit. And this Creighton team looked really good at uh, at uh, Maui Invitational in the course of the. It, well, I guess it was shortly before truly the Thanksgiving multi-team events. This was. This was still late November. They got ranked wins over Texas Tech, Arkansas, and a close loss to Arizona, also a ranked opponent. So that that didn't raise any questions for me. They they play a really competitive game against a, num- a, a then number two Texas team in the Big 12 Big East battle. Uh, I guess following up from that, didn't foresee a lot a 10-point loss to Nebraska coming. I could see there's like regional there's regional motivation in play in that game too for the Huskers. Like I think Nebraska probably played one of the best games it's going to play this season in that game against Creighton. So, but at the same time, you got to say the Blue Jays 
what happened though still right like not to make a james jaws reference but you still have to ask what happened <laughs> like right like you still have to address the questions there uh from that box score right turning out only 53 points very uncharacteristic for this creighton offense from there i i wonder how, did they let that spiral bit you've been watching this team very closely certainly as well, a fan Kalk so, Renner like, had, just, uh Kalk right. Renner was sick for, yeah like and he was out for those three those three losses and honestly i think he was a little bit sick in other losses, he just was playing. playing. Yeah, yeah I, I believe he had mono. I'm not 100% sure on that, yeah. but that's what I've heard. Well, that'd be so, hard to play through. That would be that would, not that be, would be hard to play through. <laughs> yeah. But I think when they're fully healthy, right. I think they are like a legitimate top 15-ish team. Well, you've seen them get gets closer to that that strength, and, and they played a top, a top five team in Connecticut and, and had a, a – not – I mean – Again, it wasn't a one possession, but that's a respectable final score, right? 69-60 at UConn. So the Big East, there are more and more chances coming right up very, very soon this week. Xavier and Providence. So that'll really be the the best uh, referendum on Creighton. Uh, but certainly going to show more patience, I think, because when you look at earlier in the season and before things started to pile up with the health that, that you're alluding to, uh, this was a team that was really playing way up closer to what we anticipated. For sure. And then another team, North Carolina. And speaking about injuries, I think Pete Nance is currently like injured, might be day to day, but that hasn't affected him really so far this season. But they've still disappointed. I think they're still a tournament team. But they I I I think they're just showing like that the tournament run was kind of a fluke. Like Caleb Love is like he had some crazy games in the tournament and that's not really what you can get from him on a consistent basis. He's a very inconsistent player. When he's good, he's good. When he's bad, he's terrible. Um, Baycott has still been pretty good. I think like it's come time to come to terms with the fact that this was always just like an eight-seeded level team. Honestly, maybe a little bit higher, but they were definitely overrated preseason. And I think... But I think they do still have like the pieces on the roster to make a run, because obviously we saw them, them did it last year. But I think they'll end up as like a six or seven seed. As you say that, I was I was preparing to, to disagree for the first time with you tonight in this segment because I I like North Carolina to kind of reascend towards a back end of the top 25 kind of team. And I hadn't checked in on the score tonight as we record in progress on Tuesday night. UNC is at UVA. That's a number 13 ranked Cavaliers team. And they lead UVA by five at the under 16 in the second half. So they're putting it together a little bit tonight in Charlottesville, uh, taking a look at now again, for, as we record this in progress, it's not going to mean as much looking at the box score in this one moment, in this one time out of the game. But I wanted to look at what was going on. Armando Baycott has zero points tonight so far, and UNC still leads UVA by five. So tonight, anyway, there's a potential shown for others to pick up the slack. Caleb Love only has two points. So if you told me Baycott and Love would have two points combined and UNC would still be in front of Virginia, that 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 is encouraging to me. Now, Virginia isn't immune from putting together a dud and managing to escape with a close home win. So if it turns out that way, my voice is on record <laughs> predicting that UVA could still come away with a win in ugly fashion. But uh, a North Carolina, the seed prediction from I think the seed prediction you're making is very much likely and a valid one. Uh, but I, when I'm coming to fill out my brackets, I don't like maybe it's some of the uh, allure still from last season that's kind of hasn't worn off for me right yet. 
Uh, I still think that I can picture North Carolina sneaking into a, a uh, I don't know about a second weekend, but they could pick up a a a, a, a first round win over a power five opponent. Yeah, for sure. And then speaking about Carolina, Duke has been moderately disappointing as well. I think a lot of that has been due to injuries. Um, Duke, on I think on some sites, uh, Derek Lively and Derek Whitehead were the one and two recruits in the country. And they've both been kind of banged up, kind of like not that good, really. And I feel like that's just the root of their problems. Kyle Filipowski has easily been the best freshman and the best player on the team. Um, Jeremy Roach, he's projected to be a huge breakout star, hasn't really reached that potential yet. I think I predict Duke to be around like the six or seven seed line, maybe higher depending on whitehead and lively and if they can get healthy and return to like what they were built out to be as recruits and if they get all that clicking like they could be a serious contender but as of now i'm just gonna say that they're like a six seed but they have not looked good this week at all and part of that roach is also hurt and he needs to get back and perform yeah, with Duke, your point about their their recent play is is, is true, and that stands true. So you got to take out a bit of the. I mean, winning by one at BC, at Boston College. Boston College is a bit scrappy, but Duke still shouldn't be in any place where that's the final score. Sixty five points scored in Chestnut Hill is not going to move the needle for anybody when we're evaluating any Duke basketball team. But looking forward, I'm really looking forward to. They have back to back games hosting Wake Forest and UNC. To close out January and begin February, I think that's going to be a pair of games I really look at very closely uh, because in the lead up to that, Duke should run through a number of games, Pittsburgh, Clemson, the U, uh, Virginia Tech. I, I, I waffle on a little bit. I, I, now, Duke should be favored, but I, for the most part, up until the Wake Forest, North Carolina pair of games, I, I look for Duke to uh, right the ship a bit. Filipowski is really impressive. I had the pleasure of seeing him in person when uh, I was down with Delaware at Cameron Indoor, Filipowski is he is going to be a household name. I mean, obviously he's very well known, but I, I if he if he stays in college more than one season, uh, he'll be one of those. Du- now that's like you know that's up in the air, but I I I, I think he's can kind of be a guy who is very synonymous with Duke basketball. It's a high thing that high thing to say in the way of praise, but uh, he he's really impressive. So Duke just has so many like young guns, right? And it's no different than most other years, but. They have so many young guns that by the time the ACC tournament comes around, uh, they could be they could be playing the ACC championship game. Uh, I I think they could end up in the ACC championship game, and that could result in and they're getting a a, uh, a late push and seed. But Duke and North Carolina head to head is gonna be key in deciding who is an inside track to a top eight seed rather than than the eight or nine type of range, maybe. Yeah, I think if Filipowski stays around in college, he's gonna be one of those all time college basketball villains. <laughs> I can just see it happening. Um, but I didn't call he, him a villain. I call him synonymous with Duke yeah. basketball, which I guess equates no, but, to a villain, yeah. right, for most people. <laughs> like, he's just going to be one of those white guys that is so good that just everyone hates, like him, Hansborough, obviously, in North Carolina, like Christian Leitner back a while ago. Like, if he stays in college, which I'm not sure if he's been, like, mocked in the NBA draft. I know going into the season, he wasn't looked as, like, a huge NBA prospect as some of their other freshmen. I'm not sure where that stands, but if he stays in college basketball, it's going to be a problem for the whole country because he is very good. And another team that has really struggled is Michigan. Um, it seemed like for a while they were playing with fire, but managing to 
do what they needed to in order to not have any huge marks on their resume. Then they lost the game to Western Michigan, or no, Central Michigan, Central Michigan. Uh, formal, former Illinois commits Reggie Bass hit the game-winning three for Central Michigan. But, yeah, they, they, they were just kind of playing with fire until they finally got burned, and then they responded to that with, like, a 40-point win at Maryland. So I'm not really sure what I think about this team. I probably wouldn't have them in the tournament right now, but it would be close. I'm just not sure if I really buy, like, the talent in this team that much outside of Dickinson. I really like Jet Howard, but, like, I don't know that there's just enough on the team to really make the tournament. At the same time, though, if, like, they sneak in like they did last year, also not a team I want to see in the first round. Yeah, I I get very high NIT seed vibes from Michigan. I can very easily picture that. I get... I have really strong NIT feelings about this bunch. And that's meant to be a compliment. Like, this is going to be a team that should be a threat to win the NIT. But I uh, now Michigan Ohio, fans are going to take it as a majors. compliment. Uh, what, is, it, is, is it a compliment or is it backhanded? Uh, I don't think it's a compliment to you Michigan think, you fans. You don't think it's a compliment? <laughs> to, <laughs> to, 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 to well, okay. So, uh, okay. We, we could debate about the merits of how complimentary was that. But Ohio played Michigan to overtime in Ann Arbor. Ohio is one of the best contenders in the MAC, but that made me made me raise an eyebrow in the way of, of, of uh, Michigan. They hosted Jackson State days later and won only by 10. They did play a top five Virginia team to a, a two-point loss. Uh, they, they were competitive in a loss to Kentucky, but we're talking about like quality losses here, right? So at some point, need to see the wins, played North Carolina competitively too. So it's, a, it's hard to make heads or tails out of Austin. So this is one of the most confusing teams. And then to lose to rival Michigan State, by six most recently. Now it wasn't East Lansing, it was in front of the Izone. That's you know something to account for. But I just wonder about how does Michigan really play into the Big Ten title chase? Like is where where will they land in the Big Ten tournament? How how far will they go? Because it, am I overreacting to certain results or is it just when the eye test tells you it's just you know maybe not blown away yet? So I, I I don't want to speak too strongly too soon, but I guess I already am in the sense that I'm calling it NIT already. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not projecting them to necessarily find a way back in the NCAA tournament. But um, it the, now if the team that played in uh against College Park shows up more frequently, that 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 that's the different discussion, right? I like the box score from the Wolverines win over Maryland is really I mean that that is a killer box score. That is a team that came out playing angry. The team that is the kind of team that would win the Big Ten. I mean, Hunter Dickinson, 32 points to lead the charge. Pretty much a wouldn't call it a one-side scoring effort, but I mean Terrence Williams II was the only other Michigan player in double figures. So uh I I guess Hunter Dickinson is <laughs> gonna be reasonably expected to be the frontline scorer on an NIT or NCAA tournament team for Michigan. A DeMatha guy, that that's not too far from me. So I gotta show a lot of love to a DeMatha guy, big big DC power, but um, yeah, I, if, if Hunter Dickinson is the Naismith player of the year or something, then I'll, I'll take back the NIT thing. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it, there's, there's, there's a lot to look at here and uh, take a closer dive into. You can't, I'm not going to gloss over Michigan the way I did some other of our other uh, teams. So are we worried about it or not? Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. That was kind of the reason I almost had Dickinson in my all American teams. The team success was really what, um, 
made me force him out at the last second. But I think Dickinson's great. I think the issue is everything besides Dickinson, honestly. And sticking within that theme of the Big Ten, Indiana. And I don't really know if you could say they've been, like, super disappointing because they were ranked, like, 15th in the country the other day. Um, but I, I don't really think they were actually that good. Like, I know they got some high preseason as, like, a top 10 team. I was never there. I thought they were more of a back-end top 25 team. And when they've been fully healthy, they've been pretty good. But for the foreseeable future, they will, they will be without two of their starters, Xavier Johnson and Race Thompson. Trace Jackson Davis has been amazing. Jalen Hood Shafino has been amazing. But besides that, it's... I mean, besides that, Johnson and um, Thompson have been their other two players that they've really got significant contributions from. And I'm not sure if I see them going anywhere in March at all without Johnson and Thompson. But if they have those back, I think they can make like a sweet 16. Without them, though, I don't see them winning game in March Madness. Yeah, I won't take too long on this one. I sort of because I sort of view the Hoosiers in a similar way. Although I'll make a note that these Big Ten losses, dropping a pair in a row by one point most recently to Northwestern and by two to Iowa, especially losing to Iowa, uh, given the Indiana's current situation. I you don't again none of us neither of us are writing anybody a, a completely free pass here, but certainly uh, c- coming up just shy. I mean, I'm a little more worried about the fact that Indiana looks so far away from Kansas in a 20 plus point loss like that. That that's not then that that's not a top ten. Like talk about the preseason love that 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 wasn't necessarily a vindication of the preseason uh, lore for for Indiana. Yeah, but, and um, that game they had Thompson healthy. Thompson just got yeah, hurt. Right, that, that was might have been the game Johnson got hurt in in the course. I have to double check. Yeah, that he might have got hurt that game, but even still, I mean, Kansas might be the best team in the country, but that just shows that Indiana is not really close to that level now see but the, and on the other end of that they play in the ACC Big Ten Challenge and beat North Carolina whom I gave up some love to earlier by 12 so I Indiana it kind of depends on where you started with them right like you preface by saying I wasn't as high as others on them and so therefore it, it, it it's all relative terms right so like if you were expecting top 10 and you're in January of 2023 you're not you're not seeing top 10 and that's you know you're going to be sounding more reasons for concern but if you're either of us, maybe it's a little more, maybe it's a little more relaxed. But at the same time, we're taking a close look at as the help again, it's a situation where as the help improves, we want to see those conference outcomes turn around. Yeah, and I think when healthy, they've loaded my expectations. My worries are just that they are not going to be healthy for March, which will be a serious issue. But the last team we're gonna hit on here is Villanova who has also dealt with some injuries of their own. Cam Whitmore was out for an extended period of time to start the season. He's been back for a little, and Justin Moore is still not back. Not sure when he's going to be back, but I think it should be soon. I think people are saying he'd be back around this time. He's still not back that I'm aware of, but they're, they are going to need him back. It has not been pretty for Kyle Neptune in his first year. I believe they're 8-8 eight and eight right now. I'm not sure if their game today versus DePaul. They're currently trailing DePaul. What's the score? I just had it, and then the schedule took me to the... Mm-hmm. The link took me to the overall schedule. Yeah, well, that's Live not stats. a game they're going to want to drop. Live stats to DePaul at the moment. 
50 to 43 DePaul in front of the Wildcats at the under 12 in the second half. As we yeah, well, if they drop that game, it's officially big panic mode. We need Justin Moore immediately, and we need him to be the same player he was before he tore his Achilles. But I think, I think, I think with Justin Moore back, Villanova is not a team I necessarily want to see. He kind of he's their best player when healthy, and he kind of will fit the team together. But without him, they are not making a tournament, and that's my take on Villanova. Yep, yep. It's uh, it's funny how we were talking about we were planning the show. We're saying, well, there isn't a ton of like recent like breaking injury news. Like, fortunately, there have been injuries that have occurred in the last several days, but there are a number of high level programs that are set back by is not having their uh, mainstays available. And for Villanova, at least tonight, anyway, as we take a look at the box score with DePaul in progress. Eric Dixon out in front of scoring by a wide margin with 17 points on a very efficient seven of 10 from the field. But that's the picture where even though you're getting that from Dixon, you're still down at the ball by three possessions. So that, that's not, that's not encouraging. Uh, so for Villanova under a first, under a first year head coach, uh, well, not obviously it's not Kyle Neptune's first year as a head coach. I just mean his first year as a head coach in the big East. It's, it's, it's a lot of pressure. This is a high pressure situation for the Wildcats. Uh, the post Jay Wright era is one that is certainly they're set up for success because there's a foundation there. Uh, and it's going to be a program that still, I think, reliably recruits really well. So in year over year, I wouldn't be too worried. But for this season, probably goes a little bit higher on the panic meter for me than North Carolina. And I want to make sure I get the full list of our teams we discussed. Probably more worrisome than North Carolina or Creighton. Uh, maybe in a similar conversation to Indiana and Michigan. Honestly, Indiana, Nova, Michigan in a row, very similar story. So I would kind of equate them to similar uh, spots. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. Um, Villanova, Kyle Neptune, it is. I, I, th- I still kind of buying a Neptune, but it has not been super encouraging so far this year. Also, Cam Whitmore really hasn't been like as good as some people expected him to be. I never expected him to be like all American level, but I know some did. Eric Dixon has been really good, and I do really like Eric Dixon, but they're gonna need some more if they want to put themselves in position in the NCAA tournament. And that starts with not losing to DePaul tonight. Obviously, you'll know the score, you'll know what happened if you're listening to this podcast, but we don't know what happened yet, so I guess we'll see. But moving on to the last section, we have mid-majors, mid or not. So we will determine if these mid-majors are legitimate contenders or if they're just a random mid-team in college basketball. So the first one that we're going to talk about is New Mexico. And honestly, New Mexico has been one of my favorite teams to watch this year. They were the last undefeated team in college basketball, starting off 14-0 before dropping two straight losses to Fresno State and UNLV. As much as I like the Lobos, I think they were slightly overrated once they got like once they were the last undefeated team in college basketball. I think they got a little bit more attention and they are really I mean, like, that's an incredible feat and they definitely deserve national recognition. But I think people were overrating them a little. Like I saw a lot of people put them in their like top fifteen ish. One of them may have been me. <laughs> Looking back at it, I think they're more around like 30 to 35, maybe a bubble team slightly in. I really like their guard play. Jalen House, Jamal Mashburn Jr., they are amazing. Morris Udaisy has really stepped into his role. 
Josiah Alec has been another suitable front court piece. Um, Donovan Dent is a freshman I really like. I think he's a future of this program. KJ Jenkins seems like whenever I watch a New Mexico game, he never misses a three. Um, and Rick Patino, or not Rick Patino, Richard Patino, is probably should not have been fired at Minnesota. And he's definitely a plus level Mountain West coach. But we didn't get to a conclusion about is New Mexico mid or are they for real? I think they're for real in the sense that they are a tournament team. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I also see an NCAA tournament team here. Uh, and so I can't call them mid for that reason. But right. You you hit the nail on the head with top 15. It was a little bit like drinking the Kool-Aid of being the last unbeaten and like social media graphics where retweet if your team is still undefeated and it's just New Mexico. It's like, okay, okay, okay. That that That's easy to get excited about. But I do, I do think that, you mean, you, you touched on all the players I would have discussed. So, I mean, with that, I, I, I concur. I am interested in seeing, again, I love the schedule as it shakes out for this weekend because January 14th, once again, looking ahead at the college basketball schedule, New Mexico at San Diego State. San Diego State, a big name, just as a... Just in the big picture, San Diego State gets brought up for the Pac-12 and things like that. I haven't. We will touch San on State San Diego State. So State. Yeah, we'll touch on San Diego State yeah. shortly in this uh, yeah. segment. So yeah. stay tuned, Aztec fans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, that's very in- interesting to me on CBS Sports Network because if New Mexico State goes, excuse me, not New Mexico State. If New Mexico got, a, I told myself I wasn't going to do that. If UNM goes on the road and gets a nice quality road win there, then that 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 really covers me as saying okay, like they dropped a couple of conference games after the big winning streak, but that was really just. You know, law of averages saying you can't go 20 and out necessarily start a season. So th- this New Mexico team is uh, certainly a team that has the makeup of coming out of a, like a really quality mid-major conference. Like the Mountain West is one of those A-10-like leagues, right, where it's just it's a it's going to be a multi-bid picture kind of deal. And New Mexico can be one of those kind of teams. Speaking of that, though, I don't know if you can call it A-10 a multi-bid league this year. They've been terrible. Yeah, I'm waiting for the A10 to turn around a little bit. Yeah, obviously I'm the East Coast voice on the podcast, so uh, I'm 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 waiting on the A10 to wake up. Uh, it has not been uh, a pleasant story for most media markets in the A10, but in years past, historically, it's been one of the better on one of the better leagues. But certainly this season, I'm taking the Mountain West and a Mountain West A10 challenge. That's without a, in a heartbeat. Oh, for sure. And moving to Conference USA. Florida Atlantic, they've kind of come out of nowhere. Dusty May has just done an incredible job there. Last year was probably their best year in program history. They had one tournament appearance in 2002, but last year they were in a better conference, and I think they were a better team than the year they made the tournament. But they were, yeah, they finished 129th in Ken Palm last year, and that was their best finishing program history by a sizable margin and they've just been so much better this year up to 38th in Ken Palm 13th in that 29th in uh Torvik and they're like the third team out from receiving AP pool votes and I think the Owls are for real they have some great shooting very efficient from inside and outside the arc they have so many guys who can kill you arguably three of their best four players um Michael Forrest, um, Elijah Martin, and John L. Davis don't even start for the team. Another player I really love that does start is Vlad Golden, a former Texas Tech transfer who didn't really play at Texas Tech in his first year. 
Another guy they've gotten is uh, Bryson Greenlee, I believe is his name, who played like, who scored like 0.3 points a game in Minnesota his freshman year and since then has been like a double digit guy for FAU, like a good starting point guard. Um, yeah, I think the Owls are for real. They go nine deep. They don't play anyone more than like 25 minutes a game. And all those nine guys can beat you. I think they are for real. They picked up some really good wins the past week or so. They won versus UAB at home and they won on the road at North Texas. Those are as good wins you're going to get in the Conference USA. So they proved their point there. Yeah, CUSA, they've already picked up some of the best resume builders, right, that you'll find there. You just you just pointed it out. Uh, six six scores averaging eight points or more. So balanced. The the depth, that's going to help. I mean, that's going to help with having those fresh legs to where, hey, they dominated all regular season, right, or like we're really strong throughout Conference USA regular season. Will they have something crop up during the course of CUSA tournament and maybe they get a surprise loss. It's harder to picture that when you have a team that is so evenly spread out in the minute count. I mean, only uh, Elijah Martin is going over. Only Elijah Martin. You mentioned Brian Greenlee, Michael Forrest. There, there's just over 25 minutes a game, but it's, you're not, you're not seeing anybody threaten really 30 too much. And that, that, that is a, that's that's how you get to having only one loss on the year on January 10th. So yeah, I'm I'm on the owl train for sure. Let's let let's uh unanimously get him get him in the for real category. Yeah, and a note: Michael Forrest did not play in their one loss at Ole Miss. They probably wouldn't have won without him. But that's just a little asterisk that they weren't fully healthy in that game. Um, I think that's probably worth noting. The next team, I'll let you lead this one. From the uh, CAA is Charleston. And I feel like you might have different opinions on this one. So I'll let you lead. Thank you, Austin. I mean, the College of Charleston has been the pride and joy of the CAA this season. The first ranked CAA team in the regular season AP Top 25 since, I want to say, Navy. When the U.S. Naval Academy was in the CAA back in the 80s. I have my memory, sir. So it certainly has been a big story uh, in my circles. Uh, College of Charleston is getting it done with Pat Kelsey. Pat Kelsey is an energy machine. He is an energizer bunny. He's an electric factory. He, I mean, okay, I stacked like three head coaching cliches into uh, into one description, but uh, Kelsey is already. You can basically sharpie sharpie him for CA Coach of the Year. The, the Cougars don't have to finish unbeaten for him to be the CA Coach of the Year because he's just enough of a coach and personality combined to draw votes for that. Like Charleston can finish second in the league and be just fine with him now again it's not a, it's not an individual coach discussion so i'll leave kelsey out of it in a way because it's his team too getting it done he is recruited though i mean i bring up kelsey in part because he's recruited these are guys who came from lower level programs he is he has a former division two player who's leading the way charleston is 16 and one overall winner of 15 in a row the one loss came at num- then number one north carolina and the cougars actually were out in front of that game at the half 50 to 43 now, but we've already kind of mentioned where the pauses and pluses and minuses are for North Carolina. But Charleston has put together quality wins over Richmond in overtime. They beat Davidson earlier in the year, and that win actually isn't as impressive as I thought it was going to be at the time. Uh, but they did beat Davidson, more notably beat Virginia Tech. Uh, so these are all things that the CAA has really had as a feather in its cap. But I'm not totally sold on Charleston just yet. They actually, as I'm most intimately, intimately familiar with, they hosted Delaware on January 7th. 
Delaware was without Jameer Nelson Jr. And the Blue Ends actually made that a pretty good game. Uh, it, Charleston was never threatened too much. Uh, it's still an 11 point home win. So I guess like you're really holding them to a very high standard when you ultimately get down to saying, hey, only beat Delaware by 11. Like, what the heck? But UD did win the CA tournament last season. So it's, like, it's another good win. But Charleston did only beat Towson in overtime by two in Maryland. Towson, for all of its hype as one of the top mid-majors, has really fallen flat. So I was looking for more out of Charleston against Towson. I was looking for a much more convincing win, and it just didn't come up. Now, winning in CA on the road or in any conference on the road isn't easy. Uh, but, uh, I mean, Ante Brozvic with 22 points in that win over uh, Towson, and he also had 12 boards. That is going to be that's going to be a kind of performance that you need in the CA tournament. He's one of the top uh, players for Charleston. Ryan Larson, Pat Robertson the third. They're both usually good for double figures. And then Reen Smith is a guy who was one of the bigger names on Charleston, and now he's kind of like I forget about him sometimes, honestly, because of the new <laughs> the new standouts. But so certainly by any means, without doubt, this is the hands down favorite in the CAA as it stands right now. UNCW can change that this week when the Seahawks play the Cougars head to head and what is probably my favorite CA basketball game all season, but um, I, I'm not totally all the way there on the college Charleston yet because uh, it's a matter of, I just think there's so much more we could possibly see, um, but I'm not going to drink. I'm not, I'm not going to take the bait of, Hey, look at the CA Homer over here. Who's gassing up the college Charleston. I'm, I'm going to actually stay off the ledge for a little bit uh, and not fully jump into the deep end of, of a Charleston love, but certainly it's, it's massively impressive the way Charleston's engaged the fan base there, TD Arena's rocking, but um, yeah, I, I ha- having a very close knowledge of the resume and some of those some of those players, it it knocks you over in terms of this is really good for the CEA and its publicity. But as a team individually, I don't know that actually the College of Charleston is like the same makeup as other mid majors who we've shown a lot of love to. Like I don't know if I would love them in a matchup with New Mexico or in a matchup with FAU. So that's why I temper things. Yeah, actually, I agree with what you said. I thought you would. Uh... Your CAA bias might have showed there, but I actually agree with that. Um, hey, I can hold my own a little bit here. <laughs> I, I definitely don't think they're actually a top 25 team. I don't really have a problem with the AP poll ranking them because AP poll doesn't really mean anything in the grand scheme of things. And it's nice to see smaller schools get recognized. But like one thing, like they lost by 16 to North Carolina, who like, like people... I feel like, um, like people don't people want to rank Charleston higher than North Carolina. Like, I feel like if you put Charleston up against like a few like mid level high major teams, they wouldn't really succeed too well and would lose. They'd probably be more of like a bubble team right now. Their metrics are not great. A bubble team if they obviously don't win the conference, which. They 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 are the favorites too. Obviously, UNCW is having a good season. Towson, although they've definitely had some downs, still a very talented team. But I mean, I'm not fully buying into them. But as some of the points you mentioned, Pat Kelsey has done an amazing job. He can recruit from anywhere. Three of their top five scores are D two transfers. Um, Dalton Bowen. Um. Actually, I don't know if Pat Robinson averages, or yeah, I think he's one of their top five scores. Yeah, uh, Bolin and Robinson are from the same D two school, uh, West Liberty, which I thought was interesting. And also, uh, Berzovic is from. 
some, I want to say like southeastern Oklahoma State. Am I not 100% sure on that? I know it's no, Oklahoma State. You're right on that. Yep. Okay. Well, I guess there I am right. <laughs> um, <laughs> a good, yeah, very good D2 transfers. And also, like, doesn't he have like a few, like, three or four stars in the next upcoming class? Like, he really finds guys from everywhere. Ryan Larson was a Wofford transfer. And he found uh, Rain Smith from Australia. Like, he can just get guys from anywhere. He can win with who he has. I'm not sure I'm buying into him as a legit top 25 team, but I still really like this Charleston t- team compared to this the CA in general. And not a team I'd want to play if I'm like a six or seven seed in the tournament. But not top 25 there, but I still like this Charleston team when it comes down to the things. So the next mid-major we're going to discuss is St. Mary's. And the metrics, the metrics love St. Mary's. They are like top 10 in Torvik, Net, Kenpom. And at first you're like, well, what is St. Mary's doing there? Like, they're not even in AP poll. Like, some of their losses aren't great. But then when it comes down to it, you can kind of see why they're there. They have an amazing defense. Randy Bennett can coach. And um, their offense isn't that bad. Like, they don't play an exciting brand of basketball. Tempo is one of the slowest in the country. But they still have, like, a borderline top 50 offense, which is not, definitely not reflected by how exciting they are to watch. But they are an efficient team still on that side of the ball. And the style of the way they play, like, they're going to be in every game they play. Like, for example, they didn't even, like, play good against Houston necessarily, and they lost by five. So I think that that really stands out to me. Also, they've blown out some teams. They beat North Texas by 30. North Texas did have the flu that game, so it's kind of an asterisk, but I don't think the metrics care that North Texas had the flu. So um, they have a freshman in Aiden Mahaney who is leading them in scoring. He can really shoot the ball, can really score the ball. I like him to be the future of this program. And that's not to take away guys that are having good seasons, like Mitchell Saxon, who came out of nowhere. It seems like the past few years, St. Mary's just kind of had this next man up mentality where these guys that are playing on the bench are going to be good players next year. They just have to wait their turn. And I feel like it's also been showing that they have good players on the bench. And uh, Jabe Mullins, who transferred to Washington State and is showing out there, he didn't want to wait around at St. Mary's for his time, but it's clear to show that he was extremely talented despite being on the bench and not playing that much at St. Mary's. Logan Johnson, Alex Dukas have also been having solid years. And as long as Randy Bennett is a coach, I'm not going to doubt them. I don't think they're a top 10 team. Like I don't wouldn't put them close to my top 10 as the metrics would, but I think this is a borderline top 25 team. Um, not really a team I'd want to see in the tournament necessarily because of their style of play. I think they can win even though you're the more talented team. And yeah, unless they're playing uh, UCLA because they got killed <laughs> by that. But I still like them, not as a top 10 team, but as a top 25 team and as a very legit threat 
in March this year. And another thing I realized is they were the number one team in WCC on Ken Palm. They are ranked slightly ahead of Gonzaga, which I don't think they're better than Gonzaga. But that's still worth noting that they are so high. So uh, what do you think about the Gales? Saint grind you out, Marys. They, they will grind you out. It is going to be a slugfest when you run into them. And that makes me think that you can put together a you or you can foresee a March run like uh, St. Mary's is going to be like you said, it's the classic line of in every game they play. They're not going to they can trail at the half and, and climb back into a game because their defense isn't going to be uh is going to be isn't going to be lacking or isn't going to be isn't going to be what betrays them. And so uh, Mount St. Mary's freaking very similar uh, lines of thought uh, with you that the Houston loss really sticks out. They were down 11 at Houston at the half, made it a good game uh, in early December, uh, played a nice game in another good loss against Washington and OT in the Wooden final uh, on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, that I remember that one uh, pretty well, too. That was another game where St. Mary's was trailing at halftime. So I'm not going to rule out the Gales in, in most games. Like I, the, the, the matchup with Gonzaga, I'm already circling that. Let's see. Gonzaga is February the 4th. So we will reconvene. For the West Coast Conference, for sure, when it, it gets to be St. Mary's hosting Gonzaga uh, for a uh, 7 p.m. ESPN tip-off. Uh, but uh, I, I know that that's what a lot of people do is they reserve judgment on St. Mary's until they face Gonzaga. I don't always think that that's fair, though, because obviously the, the metrics uh, help you know that, hey, even if people's eye tests are going to not give them as much credit because it's not the same tempo and offense. And and uh, not everybody's cup of tea. They won five in a row as we record. They're ten and two at home. These are all just St. Mary's kind of things to do, right? And uh, yeah, I, I I like them, and um, I'm very interested in their um, the ways they match up with Gonzaga. Yeah. So to close out the podcast, um, San Diego State is our last team that we're going to talk about, and out of these five teams, I think the Aztecs are my favorite team. I think they're the best team. Even though they lost to St. Mary's, which I don't think one game results really tell who's a better team. But I still like the Aztecs the best out of this group. And the thing that really sticks out to me is they've made so many offensive strides from last year. Like they they were they were a lead on defense last year, but their offense was bad. Like Matt Bradley is a phenomenal offensive player. That was like it last year. And this year they've gotten some help from Darian Trammell. And just like all of the rest of their guys have done so, done a good job stepping up. Jaden Ledee is another transfer. He he was on San Diego State last year, but was sitting out. He's a guy that definitely adds to their offensive and defensive um, success. And they're still an elite defensive team. Nathan Mensah is still a beast on defense. And I really like this Aztecs team. I think they can go deep in March. They have nine guys playing over 15 minutes per game. They have not lost a game out of the top 11 teams in Ken Palm. I love the Aztecs. Do you love the Aztecs, Dan? You bet I do. I mean, look at the scoring margin, beating opponents in scoring margin, 10 points. They're 10 plus, I should say, in scoring margin. So double-digit scoring margin, that's that's always something that I circle. Uh, 45.9% from the field as a team. That's really nice. Uh, th- as a team, three point percentage is is, is fine, thirty six point seven percent. Uh, that that that's that, that's pretty good. Uh, they're they're out rebounding their opponents as well, and rebounds per game and total rebounds. 
So it, it's a well-rounded team. I love the balance again. I was going to talk about the balance, but you already mentioned it with the minutes distribution. Uh, San Diego State is going to be right in line. Uh, should They should be playing the Mountain West, Mountain West Championship game. And if they had that auto bid, it would come to the surprise of neither of us. So I'm a big Aztec guy. And so with that, again, the schedule. I'm so glad we recorded this when we did because – we get to, I know we were looking at some scores in progress tonight and maybe it wasn't ideal to be like in the middle of some box scores that'll be finalized by the time we publish. But gosh, I really like the upcoming schedule for some of these teams we were done, not even debating, but we were agreeing on a fair bit. One of them being San Diego State as before too long. I want to make sure I get the right dates coming up again. It's the 14th. They host New Mexico. I love that one. I'm, I'm good. We're going to be very much interested. I guess we have to favor San Diego State in that one, but it will be a good measuring stick uh, for each side. Yeah. Do we have an update on the uh, DePaul Villanova game? My ESPN app does not want to load. DePaul remains out in front in the just over two minutes ago. DePaul 65, Villanova 58. So with the Blue Demons up seven, I would think we would still have to plan for it being a situation where we look at an under 500 Villanova team. Yeah, that's, I think with this presumable loss, it's not over yet, certainly, but it might be time for Villanova to hit the complete panic mode under 500 in mid January. You can't be having that, but with that, I think that's time to uh, conclude our first episode of the scoop. Went a little long today. I think we, uh, Went on some tangents and that weren't absolutely necessary, but it's our first episode, you know. Those things are going to get a lot better. And if you thought we were terrible today, we might have been, but we will definitely get better in the future. We're not going anywhere and we will see you next week. If you liked it, make sure to leave a little like, uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and we will see you next week. If you made it this far, thank you.